You are listening to A Taste of Romumu, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Romumu, please visit romumu.org. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. I had a teacher back in the day when I was in Orthodox rabbinical school in Shiva, called him Dudi, from David Goshen. And he would chastise us whenever we learned Gemara, whenever we learned Talmud, or specifically we teach Talmudic stories. Whenever Abdudi would teach us Agadah, which is very thick, right, folk tales within the Talmud, very literarily complex and beautiful. Dudi had a phrase that he would use with all of the rabbinical students. Atem Koftzim, he would say. You guys are jumpers. Atem Koftzim, you leap. You jump. And what he meant by that was that, by the way, before I go any further, is it too loud in here? Because I got a lot of, I got a lot of loud coming out of here. Is it too loud? I know, and all of a sudden the sound people are like, you got too much bass going on, too much treble, right? We'll get to that later. So, duty used to say, Atem Kovtsim, you jump. And what he meant by that was that we were quick to jump to a meaning that we already knew instead of waiting patiently for the meaning to emerge from the collection of evidence and from nuances, right? We would say, oh, there's a snake. Uh, it must be Messiah. Because we knew that a snake... He'd say, Atem Kovtsim, you jump. And it was a gentle chastising. It wasn't angry at us. It was kind of trying to teach us the patience of, of waiting, of learning something and waiting to see what emerges instead of superimposing what you knew beforehand. Atem Kovtsim, he'd say, and don't be jumpers. I was reminded of this teaching this week when I spent a full day learning from a master in leadership skills. I'm a part of um, this rabbinic visionary leaders cohort, famous uh, fancy name. A bunch of rabbis who get together to discuss leadership. And this past Wednesday, as my cab sped through Central Park, only to be stopped under this new law, we're going 10 miles over the, mo- over the speed limit, which was incredible. That's a whole other sermon about that whole scene. Unbelievable what happened there with the police officer and how we spoke to this guy, not for now. But as we were being told to slow down, essentially, right, being told to take our time getting there, we were going too quickly to get there. We spent a full day with Alexander Grashow, who is one of the authors on a well-known book called The Practice of Adaptive Leadership. Grashow and his co-authors on the book Ron Heifetz and Marty Linsky. They basically say that as leaders in any given situation, we are always doing one of three things. We are observing, collecting data. Two, we are interpreting the data. And three, we are acting on it or intervening in intervention. And the problem in leadership, they argue, is that We often, and this is the term used in the book, we leap to action. Atem koftzim. He said, you leap to action, leaders, 
as you collect data and as you observe and you interpret, you often feel because of your authority, because that there is a problem that we need to fix it immediately. Now, we all know that there are things that we have to fix immediately. If somebody is, God forbid, in danger or there's a situation that needs immediate response, sitting around and talking about it, interpreting it can be obviously not the best idea. But often those leaders who are entrusted by a community or by a nation will fix a problem before they've actually interpreted precisely what the problem is. He says there are two approaches. There's a technical fix, which means that you know how to fix it. It's something that you've seen before. You turn off the heater. You call up the operator. You call up the cable service. You do what you've done because it works. That's a technical fix. And when we observe and interpret, and then we fix, he says we miss an opportunity called adaptive leadership, which means we stay in the level of interpretations where they proliferate, where ideas work against each other, where conflict potentially arises because there's not one way to interpret the data. And we give up in the moment the notion that we actually know the problem at all, and by definition, we don't know the solution. We are just observing data, interpreting as many interpretations as we can, and then, and only then, do we then move to action. He says, the path of been there, done that, therefore, still there, do that, that's koftsim, that's jumping. This need to resist the urge to jump. Resist the urge to jump. He says, comes from a deep fear of disruption. A deep fear of disequilibrium. And most importantly, he says, it comes from a deep fear of loss. When we give up the way we've done things, or the way we thought it was, we have to deal with grief. We have to deal with the sense of that which was is no longer, and we don't know yet what will be. He writes, argue, and I think he argues very passionately, and I was very moved by this. He says, people have an adage that change is hard. He says, when was the last time somebody gave back a winning lottery ticket? Anybody? Change is hard when the change is unknown and when that which we are leaving is something we must grieve for. And good leaders, he writes, good leaders practice adaptive leadership. They practice disrupting their people and bringing them into a place that they can handle at a pace they can handle. Lastly, they argue that the practice of adaptive leadership is a lifelong practice. Live life, they write, as a leadership laboratory. Every day of our life, every moment of our life is a laboratory for leadership. Do we technically fix a problem or do we adaptively lead? That's their charge. So all of us here, and in every synagogue around the world, tomorrow morning we'll be reading a story that, in my personal opinion, 
Our Exodus narrative and where we are specifically tomorrow morning in the Torah is itself a lesson in adaptive leadership. I think that the way that we leave Egypt, the way that we leave Egypt, and each of us here is invited to leave Egypt also because we are to see ourselves as if we ourselves were there. Each and every one of us is called to leave Egypt. And it isn't just leaving Egypt, but how we left Egypt. The art of Exodus. To be an artist of Exodus means that God in the story, God's character in teaching the poor, the oppressed, the desperate hordes, how to leave God models for the Israelites and for all of us, how we can adapt, adopt, adapt these strategies for ourselves. Here's the scene, everybody. Tomorrow morning, chapter 12. God will tell the Israelites through Moses, Mishchu ukechu lachem. I'm about to have this plague of the firstborn. Take for yourselves mishchu. Pull to yourselves and take a lamb. Take it into your homes on the 10th day of the month of Nisan. The 10th day of the month of Nisan. And then on the night of the 14th day of Nisan, four days later, you are to slaughter that lamb, gather its blood into a pan, and place blood on the lintel and on both of the doorposts. And that, that blood will become an os, will become a sign, a sign for that one who is going to be poseach, that one who will be jumping, leaping over the homes, that this is a home where the Paschal offering was offered. And then the Torah says, I want to go back. Some of you might have heard me talk about this ritual, what I think is the most powerful, shamanic, embodied ritual in, in my opinion, in the Jewish tradition. I'll get to that in a moment. But here's the leadership story. God says to Moses, tell them to take the seh, tell them to take the lamb on the 10th day, only to sacrifice it when everybody on the? One more time, I think I lost at least 200 of you. On the 10th day, take the lamb. Should we do a little visual? Okay, here we go. Here we go, here we go, here we go. Come on, come on, here we go, come on. Into your house. And then slaughter it on the? All of the Jewish commentators, beginning with the Talmud and the Midrashim, and then all the way down, why did God command the Israelites to wait four days? Man, I'm telling you, if I'm an Israelite in Egypt, I am scared out of my bajingas. Why? Lamb is holy. What a radical act of civil disobedience. What an incredibly heretical moment. God tells the Israelites to take the holy 
God of one of the holy deities of Egypt, they would bring it into the home and then hold on to it for four days. You're thinking, well, where am I going to keep this lamb? Uh, in here, uh, I don't know, like four days with the God of Egypt. Can you imagine the disequilibrium that you're experiencing if you're an Israelite? How you are thrown? You have just brought in the sacred object of your enemy into your home and it would be one thing if you would kill it right away, but no, 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 four days. Hold on to it for four long days. Now, there is a tradition in the Jewish tradition that says that those four days, the whole point of this was to mock the Egyptians and their God, to up the ante as it were to say, ha-ha, look who has your God in his house. But there's a more, I think, an even stronger tradition that says that the Israelites themselves worshiped that God too. And so it wasn't just an act of radical disobedience. It's brought down in Shemot Rabbah and other places. Like the Israelites themselves worshiped that God. So what's Moshe doing as a leader? He's saying, before you leave Egypt, you're going to have to sit in this house with this God, with this object of your veneration, of their veneration. You're going to sit in a place of radical uncertainty and, and discomfort before you can leave at a pace that you can handle. Not seven days, not 11 days, not two days, but just enough to make you uncomfortable to see your pattern close enough. It's in your house. It's right there. And then slaughter your enemy's God or your own God and gather its life force, gather its blood, and then put it onto the doorpost and onto the lintel, and you are going to walk through that doorway, that birth canal, that bloody place of rebirth. You will walk through the thing you fear the most. It will become the portal that brings you into your new place. The art of Exodus. The art of Exodus is the art of being able to handle the discomfort, to be able to handle the disequilibrium, to wade our way slowly, ever so slowly, to a place where our comfort zone is over there and we're over here. I can't tell you how many people come to Rome and Mu and say, Rabbi, man, I loved it, but when that guy started getting up and dancing, and I say to them, you know, that's my holy brother Yitzchak. My holy brother Yitzchak has written so many incredible works on the great Hasidic masters. He himself is a Hasid. He's a lover of God. He's dancing. What exactly makes you uncomfortable about a guy dancing in the synagogue to God? Well, I, you know, listen, I, I'm not sure, but, uh, you know, I was happy with the Lachadodi, but then when they started dancing, that was a little bit too much. So I, I say, I say um, it, it's, it's good to be a little bit uncomfortable, no? Don't, don't you want to grow? How great would it have been if our great president, I'm so thankful that Barack Obama was a president, I voted for him, I would vote for him again. I'm not a politician. 
But how great it would have been as a leader if he would have stood up at the State of the Union and instead of making all of his own constituency stand and clap, he would have actually said everything completely opposite from what his own group wanted to hear. I don't know if it would have worked. But it gets a little bit tiring when leaders say the things that everybody wants to hear. That's how they stay in power. They say it for their own groups, for their own synagogues. Rabbis say the things that people want to hear. Preachers, parents, and what would it be like if instead of comfort, we actually were a little bit uncomfortable, just a little bit, just enough so that we knew that maybe we're about to grow. That's Moshe. That's Moshe in me, in you. That's Moshe in the text. Take that God into your house. The art of Exodus begins with your discomfort. And this last moment, that doorpost over there, the doorpost on any Jewish home, on any sacred space, is a reminder to each and every one of us of that blood, of that life force that beckons us, that calls us in, that asks us to remember the power of, of being able to hold the in-between space. The doorpost that is between what was that you are grieving and what is coming every time we walk through the door. There's a whisper that says, don't jump. God will jump, that's great. But you don't jump. Don't drive so fast to get to your leadership meeting. Atem team. Stop. Kiss a mezuzah. My dear friend Rabbi Yitzchak wrote in one of his books that there were great Kabbalists who used to stand by the mezuzah and they would meditate on the mezuzah. They would meditate on the divine name Shaddai, which means enough. As they stood in the in-between space between their old world and the new one yet to begin, they would stand and they would swallow the name of God, meaning they would internally meditate on God's name illuminating all of the liminal spaces, reminding themselves it's okay to dance, but, but don't jump. I want to bless each and every one of you here tonight, and I know you blessed me back. This whole business of becoming a great leader is really about becoming a great human being. What it is to be a leader for others and for ourselves means to have the capacity to be Yoshev Besetir Elyon, to sit in the place of, of I don't know yet. Betzel Shaddai, in the place of enoughness, I can rest. In the place where I'm not jumping, where I'm waiting, I'm not too quick to, pro- to solve a problem I think I know with a solution I think I know. May we be blessed to stop long enough to kiss all of the mezuzot, all of those places of in-between, and all of the bena arbayim, and all of the in-between darknesses. May that blessing hold us as we dance, and as we sing our way to freedom. Amen.